0: so uh, yeah, keep your copy of God's Word out. We are going to be in Psalm 27 today. And uh, we're going to be in this second week of our Prayer Week series. You know, last week we looked at having confidence in prayer from 1 John 5. And today I want to talk to you about seeking God's presence from the psalm Mike just read for us in Psalm 27. And uh, that came out of some of my prayer times this week. Um, several of us were here on Monday through Friday from 630 to 730. Uh, praying here for you, for our church, for our community. And I just had this overwhelming sense that I want to know more of God's presence in my life and in our church in 2022. So I thought I would share with you some of that today. And as we do, I want to ask you, what habits do you hope to form this year? What habits do you hope to form? You know, it's the first Sunday of the year, so you knew I was going to come at you with some kind of resolutions or something. And uh, what habits are you going to be thinking about? Charles Dewey wrote this book, came out in 2014, called The Power of Habit. And it's a pretty compelling book. He, he takes some of the latest research from neuroscience and sort of opens it up about the way habits guide us into Consistent patterns of behavior, you know, we have good habits and we have bad habits, but pretty much the things we do in life are because they are ingrained into our brains. And I don't know that he's a Christian. Uh, In fact, I would guess he isn't. But when I read this book, it made me realize why Paul said we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. The habits you and I have, the good ones and bad ones, they're powerful. And some habits are more powerful than others. Uh, He he talks about what he calls keystone habits, which are these habits that have the ability to impact all other kinds of areas of your lives. Uh, Some of these keystone habits are things like getting into a habit of exercising every day or of making your bed first thing in the morning Or of having a set morning and bedtime routine. That if you can ingrain these things into you, it, it makes everything else fall into place. These keystone habits are different from person to person. Because they have to fit in our life circumstances. And with the personalities that God has made each of us with. So the thing that makes me tick may not be the thing that makes you tick. Your keystone habit may be different. But I think there is one keystone habit that has the ability, the potential of transforming everybody's life. Everybody. Change the way you face your present circumstances, change the way you think about the future, the way you interact with your family and with your coworkers, the kind of thing that could even change our church. And it's the habit of seeking God's presence. If you could do that, get into the habit of seeking the nearness of God, it would change everything. This morning, I want to show you why. I think it's because in the light of God's presence, our problems are small and the future is clear. And that's what David talks about here in Psalm 27. He, he talks about the presence of God. And we know David. I mean, he is the king. Uh, you know, in royal David's city, the Messiah is born. We know all about David, and I wish that Psalm 27 had come to us from like a, a bright and sunny spot in David's life, but the language and the context seems more to be about that time period in David's life when he was on the run. Maybe you know that after he had defeated Goliath, the first king of Israel, Saul, sort of tried to bring David into his inner circle. Uh, He was clearly God's anointed. God's hand was on his life, and so Saul wanted him near. Uh, David would soothe Saul with his music, and uh, Saul even offered David his daughter um, to be married so he could sort of ingrain him into the power structure and royal family. But Saul couldn't quite handle the popularity that came to David because of his continued success on the battlefield. And, you know, the song that the people were singing was, Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his ten thousands. And uh, Saul was jealous and insecure. And so he did what every ancient king did. He He tried to kill David and threw a spear, right, to try to pin him to the wall twice. And finally, once David got... Clarity on Saul's intentions, this beautiful story where Saul's own son Jonathan gives David the heads up, like, "Hey, my dad is not going to give up until you're dead." Uh, David runs, and he ends up living in the wilderness of Judah, um, hiding out in caves and up in these mountaintops. And First Samuel tells us that eventually 600 disreputable warriors who are loyal to him alone end up surrounding him, and they put up this sort of resistance to Saul and his men. And so while David was exiled and constantly pursued by Saul, his mind kept returning to God, you know, time and time again, wherever he was, whatever he was doing, God was on his mind, and I love the way he puts it in Psalm 27, 4. I think this is the heart of this psalm. One thing I've asked from the Lord, one thing that I shall seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord, and to meditate in his temple. You've got the scene in your mind David on the run living in the cave of Adullam, sleeping on the rocks every night. And when he started praying, his prayer wasn't that Saul would give up and he could go get a good night's rest in his own bed, or that he'd have some peace and quiet and enjoy his wife and children. It wasn't anything like that. The one thing that David wanted more than anything else was to be in God's presence in God's house. The one thing David sought above all else was God's presence. And I think that's interesting because David's a man after God's own heart and I assume knows God better than almost any other person in the Old Testament except maybe Moses who saw God so intimately that he came down off the mountain or out of the tent and his face was shining brightly Or maybe David's descendant, Josiah, who loved the Lord with all his heart. I think David knew God. Because of that, he knew that God is omnipresent. Omnipresent. This wonderful attribute of God that I'm sure you know about, think about. Millard Erickson, who wrote the book that some of y'all are going to read with us in 2022, defines God's omnipotence like this. He says it means that God cannot be localized to any particular point. So you can't say, well, where is God? Well, he's right here. You can't say that about God because he's everywhere. He can't be localized in a single point. And at the same time, it means that there's not a place in the entire creation where God is not present. So God's not right there, but he's everywhere. Okay, that's God's omnipotence. And I think David knew about that. Don't think this is something us modern people have a corner on. I think people who know God know God. David knew God was omnipotent and omnipresent. But he also knew that God had made a particular promise to be present in one specific place with his people. Uh, Moses told the people of Israel, as they waited to go in the promised land in Deuteronomy 12, that eventually when they got there, God was going to identify a special place. And he was going to make his name to dwell there. And that was the place they were going to bring their sacrifices. Now eventually, that place would be identified as Jerusalem. And David's son Solomon would build God a temple there. You you know, David had his own house, and he wanted to build God a house. And God said, no, you can't build me a house. I don't live in houses. Anyway, you're a man of war. But I'm going to let your son build me a house. And so Solomon builds this house for God. And when they dedicate it and set it apart to be the place where God is going to dwell, God descended, and his tangible presence was so thick that the priests who were there at the temple couldn't even do their job. David knew that God was particularly present in one specific place. He was present covenantally. He promised to be their God and they would be his people. And so he would give them the dignity of having him nearby. And here's David in exile, hanging out in the wilderness, letting his mind return not to the temple, but to a wandering tent called the tabernacle. And he's thinking about all the times when he must have gathered with God's people. Offering sacrifices for atoning for sin and for making peace with God. And he thinks about how it feels to be in the presence of God. You know that feeling? You feel it now? That's what David is thinking about. That's what he wants more than anything else. Man, I just wish, we'd say it like this, I wish I could get back to church. That's what made David's heart tick. He wanted to be near to the one he loved. Want to be close to God. Usually, to be close to God in the way that David talks about it in Psalm 27.4 was the unique privilege and right of priests and Levites. These men who had descended directly from Aaron himself and so had a special responsibility to make sure the function of the tabernacle happened. They'd move it from place to place and set it up, and they'd enter into its court so they could offer the sacrifices for the people. They were the go-betweens, the mediators of God's presence to his people, so that when the priest showed up and sprinkled blood on you and said, hey, the Lord bless you and keep you, the Lord make his face shine upon you, lift his countenance upon you and give you peace, you could believe that God said that because he was speaking through his priest. It's their unique privilege and right to be in the house of God, to dwell in his tent. But on the run and fearful for his life, David wanted that more than anything else. One thing I've asked, one thing that I seek, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. David wanted to be near to God. Because even though God was present everywhere, out there in the wilderness of Judah, David didn't feel him near to Him. And I found that's the case. You know, life struggles, the chaos that plagues our world often has a way of obscuring the nearness of God to us. We know doctrinally and theologically that God is omnipresent. God can't not be what He is in Himself, and He is eternal in space and time. He's everywhere. And we know the verses. You know them. I've been quoting them a lot because these verses are what I'm meditating on and what God's putting in my heart. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I love the way David prays it in another place. Even if we make our bed in Sheol, behold, you're there. These are facts unchangeable truths about God because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is everywhere. But in the mess of life, in our experience, don't you know that sometimes the nearness of God is lacking? You felt it, I hope. You know what I'm talking about, and I'm not the only person in this room who's felt like God is nowhere to be found. And so David seeks him. The one thing I want more than anything, let Saul and his men come after me. Keep me living in caves the rest of my life, but do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Do not abandon me. The one thing I want more than anything else is to be near you. That's what David means when he talks about seeking God's presence, pursuing this sense that God is with us. I think the reason David did that is, of course, because he loved him, but he also, also his life was such a mess And he just knew, hey, the one thing that could make my life better was if God was with me and I felt like it. like the way one commentator said it. He said that the best way to face life's challenges is with a preoccupation with God. Everything's going crazy, but you can't get your mind off of him. And this kind of singular focus on God's nearness and his presence, despite what's going on around you, is the thing that I'm telling you could be a keystone habit in your life that changes everything. To focus completely, 100%, soul, mind, spirit on God will change your life. Because David didn't ignore the conflict raging around him, or the fact that Saul and his men, you know, are all the time going left and right, left and right. I, you know, maybe David's on top of a mountain. And he can see them down there searching for him, and they're, Massive caravan, their sheriff's posse hunting him down. And, you know, he's watching them look everywhere, but they can't find him. David's not ignoring that. He just knew that if he was in God's presence, if God was near to him, he wouldn't have to live in fear, cowardice, concern. And he had to have faith and confidence. He says that in verses 1 to 3 The Lord is my light. And salvation. Whom shall I fear? These guys running around here trying to find me. The Lord's the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? When evildoers come upon me to devour my flesh, the image there is like ravenous wolves who are all the time nipping at his heels. When they come upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. Though a host, the whole army, encamp against me, my heart won't be afraid. Though war arise against me, in spite of this, I'll be confident. I love David. I love the way he prays. I love his self-talk, that we get into his own head and heart to understand how he's processing the events of his life. When he thinks of his, con- uh, his conflict, he brings it into the light of what he knows about God. He finds his confidence in God's character. I mean, listen again to how David describes his experience of God. He, he doesn't go through the doctrinal, the creed that we know, you know. I believe in God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. He, he talks in personal terms. The Lord is my light. The Lord's my salvation. The Lord's the defender of my life. David speaks of God in intimate and personal terms. He didn't believe in God who was far removed, the God of Benjamin Franklin, the deists, who believed that, yeah, God may have created the world, but like a master clockmaker, he set it in motion and sits it on the shelf. He's absent and removed, sitting far above it. Now, David believed in a God, the God of the Bible, the God who rains fire from heaven, to destroy his enemies and opens up Red Seas and provides manna from heaven because he loves his people. The God who sees his people's worries and troubles, and when their foes are nipping at their heels, he makes them to stumble. David knew God like that. That's who God was to him. God intimately and personally involved in his life. God was a light in David's darkness. that song we sing, Is He Worthy? Didn't it have a line in there, Mike, about the darkness? Is all creation groaning it is? I don't know. Man, don't you see the world is dark? Your life is dark. The news is dark. It's dark. But the Lord is my light. He knew God as salvation For the helpless, the defender of the weak. In other words, in God, David saw every answer to the problems he faced. In God, David saw every solution, every answer to the questions. He saw in God every good thing he needed in his life. God was it. Not what God could do. Not the Lord bring salvation, though that's true. Not the Lord shines light. The Lord himself is my light. The Lord is my salvation. The Lord is the defense of my life. That is David in the presence of God, beholding his beauty, looking him straight in the face and saying, you are everything I need. And when David did that, when he looked at God and saw him for who he is, how he's revealed himself, his problems were really small. God bigger than everything? According to David, you better believe it. And I think if a person were to get in the habit of spending time in God's presence, they'd they'd have to recognize him for who he is too. You know, you look at the the crises in the world, constantly evolving pandemics and endemic disease, that it seems like every few months you and I are going to have to lose our minds again and figure out what we're going to do. It's crazy. Think about the natural disasters. How many thousands of people had to evacuate their homes this week in Colorado because of wildfires? Kentucky, more tornadoes. Inflation, making a dent in your paycheck. Conflict in the world. I mean, all kinds of crazy stuff happening in the world. Big stuff. Big stuff that the brightest minds and the most wealthy governments can't solve. This is like big problems to me. And then you look at your personal life, right? And you got big problems there too. Frustrations at work, frustrations at home, broken relationships, your financial worries, where it doesn't matter how many trillions of dollars the government has, if you had 100 extra dollars, it would change your life. You know, like that's the big problems we have. And how we face those problems tells you everything you know, you need to know about your view of God. Do you have David's view of God? Do you have the Bible's view of God or not? Because if you believe in God like David believed in God, then you would take up all your worries and cares and you'd bring them before God and cast them all on him because he cares for you. You'd bring them to him in prayer because you know that God's bigger than every problem you've got in your life. Compared to God, it doesn't matter. The insurmountable things, the things that you've tried to solve on your own, all those things that seem impossible for you are so possible for God. So you either believe in God like that, that God, the God of the Bible, the God who's bigger and greater than everything and makes problems seem so infinitesimally small, or you don't. That's all there is. Your problems seem impossible to solve. Well, they are in your own strength, but not for God. We don't serve an impotent deity, but one who's able to do far more abundantly beyond what we can even ask or think. A God who upholds all things by the word of his power. Word of his power. Some people like to translate that, his powerful word. Uh, Theologian R.C. Sproul says that God upholds all things in such a way so minutely in detail that if he stopped, every atom in all the universe would come apart. That's what we're talking about. A God who does that, who upholds all things by the word of his power, who the proverb says uh, looks at kings who are so powerful, presidents who can do no wrong. He says they are like rivers in his hands, that he turns their will any way he wants to accomplish his purpose. I mean, a God that Paul runs out of ways to talk about it. And he just says, if God is for us, who can be against us? In the light of God's presence, all our problems are small. They're small. I mean, we are talking about a God who looks at the unbreakable chain of sin that you and I willingly lock ourselves in and then throw away the key to the point that the only way the Bible can talk about it is to just tell us we're not weak, we're not anything we're dead in our sins that's a big problem for me and you I can't obey God enough to earn my way back into his graces because how do you outweigh an eternal debt of sin. But God did what we can't do. And he sent his son Jesus in the likeness of sinful flesh under the law to obey God completely. To die on the cross and a sacrificial death. And when the whole world, when all Satan and his demons thought, finally we've got him. Who can overcome death? God speaks the word and raises him up again. Because of that, the chain that you and I can't break out of is just undone. We have forgiveness of sins. We have reconciliation with God. There is nothing in all of creation that my God cannot do. My kids sang that song in preschool. My God is so big, so strong and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do for you. In the light of God's presence, your problems are small. Christian life isn't a call to ignore the painful reality of life in a broken world. Like, you and I are supposed to show up, and because God's big and our problems are small, we just got to fake the smile and look at the world through those rose-colored glasses. It's not like that. But what it is, is we are taught to examine our crises in the light of what we know about God To bring them into his presence. Consider them in the context of his character. When you do that, the problems sort of just get clouded out by the magnificence of God's glory. The sufferings we experience now aren't worth being compared to the glory that's going to be revealed. Listen, for all eternity, you will experience the unmediated presence of God. Beholding him face to face, seeing him as he is. But right now, you see him in a glass darkly. But then, bright, shining, brilliant light. God. So in his presence, your problems are small. I think David is bringing all his worries, concerns. He's looking at the armies, searching for him. He's bringing him into God's presence. He says, the Lord is my light. He's my salvation. He's the defender of my life. And it changed everything. In spite of this, I'm going to be confident in the present right now. But David also had this unshakable hope for the future. And so, in the light of God's presence, the future too is clear. And that's what we see in the second half of David's prayer, really picking up in verse 6 and going on to the end of the psalm. And we don't really, we're not going to read through it, but just think about how he talks about God. In verse 6, David was sure that God was going to come deliver him. And he says, lift up his head over his enemies. You know, he's not going to have to walk around with his head hanging down all the time. But he's going to be able to walk with his chest out, his shoulders back, and his head held high because what God was about to do. He was confident in verse 7 and 8 that God was going to hear his prayer. He wasn't going to turn him away in anger. Like, David, I don't want to hear from you. No, God was going to receive him, hear him, and answer him. David knew in verses 9 and 10 that even if everybody on the face of the earth abandoned him, even if his own mom and dad. So we want nothing to do with you. That God would stay faithful. He knew in verse 11 that God would give him direction. Teach me your way. Lead me in a level path. Somewhere where I'm not going to have to watch my every step, but I can just walk confident like Patton Park with the new asphalt. You don't have to worry where you're going to trip and fall. It's all good. That's what David wanted. And finally in verse 13, he was confident of this. I'll see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Listen, the light of God's presence, the present chaos shrinks away and the future becomes clear. He didn't have to wonder or worry about what his future held because he knew who held his future. Right? That is who David knew God to be. God had anointed him. He'd experienced an unmistakable stamp of approval from God to him. God's own prophet Samuel dumping oil over his head as a sign of his anointing. He knew what God was up to. He knew what God had planned to do. He looked at all the events of his life. He saw that, hey, who can, who can defeat the great champion of the Philistines when they're just a little kid and only have a few stones in their pocket? Only God can do that. He looked at the events of his life and he knew God had been with him. He knew every step of the way God had opened these doors, that God did for him things that he could have never imagined. And so he knew now that God wasn't about to go back on the things he'd said. He wasn't about to abandon him. And so when David looked at his present circumstances and started to think about the future, he anchored his hope in God and who God was and what God was going to do. No more worry. Verse 14, he just says, Wait. Wait. Mark Vitato an Old Testament scholar. talks about the different genres of the psalms. And he identifies this psalm as a psalm of confidence. And a key feature of a psalm of confidence. It's not like a psalm of rejoicing where after the victory has been won, they lift up this prayer of praise. But it is a psalm of confidence because even though the victory hasn't come yet, the psalmist is convinced that it's certain and sure. And so they pray like it's already happened. I'm convinced I'm going to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And I believe that David's prayer of confidence is a perfect example for me and you. See, just everything we need to know. If you look with two eyes at your present circumstances, you are bound to get distracted. Listen, you think about the the COVID pandemic, you think about the personal crisis that's going on in your life, and just look at it long and hard for a little while. Take a measure of your feeling, the condition of your soul before. Think about it for a few hours. They have this thing online called doom scrolling. Have you heard of that? It's where you just can't stop reading all the terrible news. You go down the rabbit hole trying to find out more and more information. Do that for a couple hours. And then measure your soul again and see if your soul's in a better place. See if you got more peace or joy than you had before you started. Right? Keep your eyes, both of them, glued to the darkness, and you are bound to get discouraged and bogged down. But David wasn't looking at his present circumstances, he was looking at God and where God was in the future. David knew his purpose, and so he was looking there. I know where you're bringing me. I know what you're going to do. I'm confident of this. If I wasn't confident, I'd lose my mind. I'd doom scroll all day. I'd despair. But I'm convinced I'm going to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And all that's left for me to do is wait. That's David. The future absolutely clear in the light of God's presence. And I just want to tell you, your future is as clear as his is. The Bible doesn't say that your future's up in the air. Or TBD, to be determined. God isn't sitting on the edge of his seat wondering how your life's gonna turn out. Like, oh. Wonder what terrible mistakes they'll make today. You know, like just waiting to see. That's not what God's all about. Instead, the scripture tells us over and over that your destiny is fixed, predetermined, clearly defined in God's word. He says it. Romans 8:29. You've been predestined. Why is it that that word makes us so uncomfortable? Isn't that supposed to be where we anchor our hope? You've been predestined to be conformed in the image of His Son. Because if it were up to me, I'd doom scroll until I was a shriveled up version of myself. The thanks be to God that before time began, He set His seal on me. That in Him... I'm predestined to adoption into God's family. That nothing I can do can separate me from the love of God in Christ, not because I live my life perfectly, but because God's got me by the shirt collar. And He's not going to let me go until He finishes His work in me. We believe, don't we, that God knows the good plans He has for us. Peter says we've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And now all that's left is for us to wait to receive our inheritance from God. That's great, but don't you know people sometimes change their wills and write you out of it? What if they come to probate and they go through it and you're not there? Now Peter says that this inheritance is imperishable. It's undefiled and it's unfading and it's kept in heaven for you who are being guarded by faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. That's your destiny. An inheritance that God is going to pour out to you, not once, not twice, but every day until eternity is up. That's your future, your destiny. God has a plan to reconcile all things through Christ, to judge his enemies, the living and the dead, to bring us, his people, into his presence. I love the way Paul talks about it in 1 Thessalonians 4. He says, hey, I don't want you guys to be concerned, that, hey, the day of the Lord hasn't come yet, and we not all are going to sleep. But in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, a trumpet blast will appear, and the Lord will come, and He'll call up those who are dead in Christ first, and then He'll raise us to meet the Lord in the air. And so, we will always be with the Lord. His plan for you is to bring you to Himself. He would have prepare a place for you. He would not have told you that He did, if it wasn't the case. And so someday, He's going to come back for you and take you to be in His presence forever in a completely remade world. This is the future. This is your future if you know Christ. So think about that next time you're doom scrolling. Who, who am I? What am I made for? What did God send His own son Jesus to die did he send him to die so that I could be miserable all my life or did he send him to die so that I would experience the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living listen in the world you are not going to experience anything different than you've already experienced the last two years or so are a pretty good benchmark for our expectations for the next two years Paul talks about people going from bad to worse so I don't know if we should expect things to get better anytime soon. So how does a person stoke the fire of faith, cultivate hope in God in the midst of that? The only way I know is to follow David's example and get in the habit of seeking God's presence above everything else. One thing I ask God, I want to be close to you. One thing I'm going to seek, I want to be in your house all the days Of my life, because in the light of God's presence, our problems are small, our future is clear. So, in 2022, will you get into the habit of seeking God's presence? Will you make a commitment to start every day with God? By the way, one pastor talked about it. He said, You ought to be with God early, first, or not at all you got to be with God early. Maybe you need to set your alarm early. Maybe your keystone habit is getting up at 4.30. 4.30 is a special hour of prayer. Maybe you need to get up early and start your day with God. But hey, listen, not everybody's cut out for 4.30. Some of us like to sleep. So get with Him first. Maybe you wake up at 7, but the first thing you're going to do is you're going to get with God. Because the deal is, if you don't get with God early, you don't get with God first, you're not going to get with God at all. You're going to make plans to get with him later in the afternoon. Hey, I'll catch up with him before bed. And bedtime comes and you'll watch the show you recorded and you'll fall asleep in the bed with Cheetos all over you, you know. (laughs) Get with him early first or not at all. Will you begin your day meditating? Oh, i got to love the way Eugene Peterson put that in the middle of chapter 27 when he says, I want to meditate in his temple. He said, I want to learn at his feet. Will you start every day at God's feet, learning from Him? Thinking about His faithful acts in Scripture, in Christ? For the next 51 Sundays, I'll give you a couple skips. But for the next 51 Sundays, Lord willing, will you come to worship expecting more than to hear your favorite songs and to sing along with Mike and the band? Will you come to worship for more than an inspirational, uplifting sermon that feeds your soul? The next 51 weeks, will you come to worship to meet with God? If God is not here, what are we doing? Come to worship to meet with God to experience a life-changing and personal encounter with Him. If 2021 is any indication, like I said, there are going to be some distractions. There are going to be some mornings when you don't feel like getting in the Word, feel like praying. Lots of chaos. Lots of news articles going to capture your attention and obscure God from you. But I want you to be like this woman that I read about this week, Mrs. Chumby. In 1961, Queen Elizabeth made a royal visit to Nepal. And she invited the steward of the Yeti scalp to dine with her at a royal reception. Literally, supposedly the scalp of the abominable snowman. Okay? Mr. Chumbi and his wife to come down to this royal reception in Kathmandu. And nobody turns down an invitation to eat with the queen and so Mr. Chumbi and his wife made their preparations to go. The major challenge for them was that they lived in a village near Mount Everest, over 180 miles from Kathmandu, and Mrs. Chumbi was nine months pregnant. But again, who in their right mind turns down an invitation to eat with the queen? And so one morning in September, they set out, On the 180-mile walk. Four days into the journey, Mrs. Chumby, who was nine months pregnant, begins to feel some labor pains. And even a good baby doctor now, will tell you, if you're trying to get things moving, go for a walk. So she's walking, uneven, poorly paved roads, feels some labor pains. Stops there on the side of the road and has a baby. But again, nobody turns down an invitation to eat with the queen. And so she took an hour breather, got up, and finished the journey. She knew what an incredible privilege and life changing experience it would be to eat with the queen. And she overcame every obstacle and barrier to get there. Get in the habit of seeking God's presence like that, seeing the incredible privilege it is, the life-changing experience it would be to see your problems in his presence and recognize how small they are and to get his clear vision of your future. Is that what you want? Let's pray together.